Welcome to Robos Basketball Episode 3. I'm Andrew Bogut, and we have the big fellow on the other line, pro Mike Procopio. How are you going, man? Folks, uh, I just want to let you know, with my seven actual followers, they let, they let me know about the uh, podcast. They said, we're the only podcast ever that they don't know what the fuck we're talking about. They can't understand us. We actually need subtitles. So I called Google to see if they could figure that out to actually have subtitles on an audio show. We can try our best. We can try our best. Even if we do, might get one of those. Might have to do some video and get one of those people on the side that does a sign language because um, we both mumble at the best of times. You have a lisp. I have a thick Aussie accent that's all over the place. So, oh, well, just got to make sure that the listeners are attentive. No doubt. So, interesting week. How was your, how was your Christmas first off? Christmas was great. Watched the kids open up presents I can't afford. You know, and then uh, ingested about 27,000 calories. It's not bad. It's an off, di- off day for me, but it's all good. <laughs> That's what it's all about, though. How about you, man? You're supposed to join a gym on January 1st, so make sure you do that like everybody else. Uh, we're good. Actually, I have it set. January 33rd, I'm actually starting it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we were good here. Uh, kept it low-key with the kids. Last year, we went a little crazy with the presents, and this year, we kind of kept it a little bit more tame, so... Made them actually give away a lot of their old toys to get new toys. So that's kind of a cool thing that I'm doing because otherwise, not only do they have too much shit in the house, I think they they don't appreciate what they have. So we're trying to make sure that they cherish the items they they get. Moving on, let's go NBA. So we'll get started. We spoke about, you know, we had some messages going backwards and forwards during the week. I guess the elephant in the NBA or the elephant in the room for a number of reasons is James Harden and his escapades. Obviously coming into training camp was an issue. He showed up late. There were rumors he he wasn't going to report to try and leverage his way out of there. So it wasn't a great start for Houston. New coaching staff trying to reset their identity. So not a good start for them. And now we come to learn that he has breached COVID protocol. He, he was found to be photographed or videoed at a what looked to be a strip club. It looked pretty uh, nightclub-ish with some dancing going on in the background, but he denies that, uh, but he broke protocol. I guess where we'll start is the hypocrisy around the NBA's decision. So a quick quote from Adam Silver, James Harden was not suspended because the precedent is that discipline gets ratcheted up. It's Christmas. It was a first offense. In a way, he got lucky. If the game had been played, Harden would have been docked one game's pay. So he saved some money for not getting a game suspension. But let's rewind back to the bubble where we had a similar situation. Daniel House Jr. suspended, basically booted out of the bubble. Effectively, I'm pretty sure, allegedly, he banged or got intimate, would be the politically correct word, with one of the testers um, at the resort that tested your temperature when you were coming into the resort. Um, I think he took down one of those ladies, had a bit of fun, and ended up getting booted. And now you've got James Harden, who does something probably even worse knowing the current climate and just gets basically, I think it was a 40K fine. How do you see all that? You know, um, at the bubble, I actually thought that was a pretty good thing that they did. They set precedent that, hey, look, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta follow the rules, or that's not going to be tolerated. We're going to send you home. The problem is now that you have a player who's one of the top five in the league does somewhere in the same thing. He's breaking protocol, and I think the wording sets a bad precedent. To be honest, so it's Christmas time and it's first offense. Like, I think, in my opinion, Bogues, I don't know what you think. I, I think you have to set a set an example because I think the problem is. What if Yogi Ferrell does this? Or what if, you know... Daniel House does this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Daniel House did. And that's 
that's probably what they're going to be thinking is this guy gets 40 grand and doesn't miss any games. And I'm going to get, what if I get 85,000 or 100,000 and they want to set an example. So I think that it's important. This is a very important thing that everybody in the world's dealing with, with COVID and trying to follow rules. And they put out like a 500 page memo, whatever it was on giving you all the rules of what you can and can't do. And I just think that you, you got to follow them. And I think you have to have to be really serious about this and you have to set precedent where you're not going to, it doesn't matter if it's the best player in the league or the worst player in the league, you're going to, you're going to set an example right off the bat. Yeah. And I think the hypocrisy is the, the loudest thing. We, we were both discussed yesterday. The thing we noticed watching NBA telecasts, for those that, that haven't watched, watch a game. So the, the NBA benches are spaced out. They're socially distancing <laughs> the bench of an NBA game. The players are so socially distancing. If you look in the background, there's 10, 15, 20 water coolers. So I assume each player gets their own individual water from, from a specific cooler. So you're not sharing. I don't know how that helps things because you usually just fill up a cup. But anyway, so I guess the eye test from the NBA's point of view is we're doing everything right. Now, let's remember these players are – on a team bus in close quarters going to and from the arena. They're on chartered airplanes, which is pretty much impossible to to social distance because your plane's pretty full with gear and with trainers and coaches. So it was just just laughable considering the statement coming out from, from Adam Silver. But then, you know, with the eye test and aesthetically, let's make this look like we're adhering to everything. How, how hard do you laugh at all that? Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, it's um, if they're trying to do everything right, then, then obviously – what what Harden did is wrong, you know, and, and I think you have to you have to come down hard on it, and you know if you're trying to do everything the right way, then this is this comes into that, this comes into that sort of effect where it's the same neighborhood. It's you have to you have to really be hot on this stuff, and then you know I, I thought they went a little soft on it to be honest. Yeah, and I think the precedent needs to be set just because you know it's it's going to happen again down the track. You know, teams, let's say flying into Miami. You know, they've got they've got two off days before their game or two off nights. It's a rest before disaster. You already know. You know, players struggle. It's known players struggle with their own company. A, a, a high percentage of, of professional athletes in general, but especially NBA players, they struggle to just sit in the room by themselves. Um, it, it's fact. It's reality. Whether you like it or not, and I can tell you, when you you go to Miami or LA and you, you're playing, you're you're a player playing for Indiana or a small city where you don't have much to do. You're going to go out in those cities, so this is going to. I think this will this will show up again, and it's just going to be it's going to be interesting for us to watch from afar um, how that all works out. Yeah, and another thing, Bogues, like I feel bad for Oklahoma City because they did everything right. Like they, you know, obviously none of their players tested positive. They didn't have any issues. Houston does it where they've got you know seven players that are eligible because everyone else got COVID. And the game didn't get forfeited like it would maybe in the NFL or, you know, whatnot. Like they they just basically postponed the game. And if I'm Oklahoma City, I'm like, wait a minute, we did everything right. Like, you know, and these guys didn't. And it would have been a, most likely a win for OKC because the postponement now means that Houston will probably have a full roster when they play that game again. Yeah, and it's – I mean, he lucked out because that, that would have been, what, 500,000 that James Harden would have had a miss if if that game actually went on or had a forfeit. It's w- weird all around if, if you, you – know, you're looking at it from, you know, many angles on it. Do you think he paid his 40K fine in $1 bills? I don't know, man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you don't know? 
<laughs> I don't know. High chance, I think. Oh, oh, that's a fine phone going off in the background. Yeah, sorry. That's that's Adam Silver saying that I'm banned from the league. <laughs> uh, you'll be right. One other thing that was interesting, James Harden was asked a question before this whole debacle. It was a pretty easy question by the media. So it's basically touching on on everything that's been going on in the media. I don't know if you saw KD's interview with Inside the NBA and Charles Barkley. It was a pretty interesting uh, interview. So if people want to go out there and search for it, it was basically he gave them absolutely nothing, like wouldn't answer any of their questions, was one word answered. And then James Harden was asked if he feels better about the Houston situation now that he's in training camp. This was last week and his answer was next question. So, I mean, it's just a matter of time right before before he gets moved. Yeah, he'll get moved pretty quickly. Yeah, They're, they're going to try to – I'd be surprised if he's, if he's with the team past February 1st, if not much quicker than that. The relationship between players and media, especially iconic players or high-end players – where they, you know, say next question or or they're sort of cold to the media. Now, it, it sets a bad precedent for them too. It's not a professional thing. I understand sometimes in the media you have hack jobs that are just trying to get under your skin, but the media is a big reason why they're making their money that they are. You know, those guys cover them and, the, you know, men and women cover them and they try to do, you know, they have a job to do. And if you're just sitting there not giving him anything. Now, I know with, I think with Durant, he was upset that Barkley went at Kyrie Irving like a day or two before about, you know, about how he thinks he knows everything. And I think that he was just sort of standing up for a teammate. But you look back, like if you watched Michael Jordan his last year, when the, he got killed by the media every day with those same questions of, you know, are you going to run it back? You know, are you guys going to re-sign your players? And he answered it. He didn't hide from the media. You know, and I think that that's a great, he, you know, Michael Jordan was the ultimate professional with that. And I think when you're handling the media as a player, you have to, you have to hit it head on. Sometimes you're going to be critiqued. It's not going to be good. And you know, they have a job to do too to critique you as a player. And I think you just sort of have to handle it. Now, if it's a hack job and they're really just trying to, you know, TMZ you and they're just trying to get a sound bite, that's different. But mo- a lot of this stuff, there's a lot of animosity sometimes that happens in these press conferences. Yeah. And I think you hit on the head. There's, there's no, the NBA is not at the point where it is today without the media access that it grants. And I spoke about that on episode one. There is some negatives to that, but for the most part, I think the positives outweigh it because it's filling up bank accounts. I mean, the the NBA from where it was 15, 20 years ago to where it is now, you just jump on social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's it's you know, the NBA does a great job of of giving access to everyone, even some some random ass bloggers sometimes that probably don't have a big following, but they the way they see it is the more people talking about the game. The more people watching, the more money we make, the more the players make. So I think, yeah, it is it is a fine line. I think there is the the clickbaiters and all that kind of stuff, but you, you got to at least be somewhat respectful, especially of a, a national TV show like Inside the NBA. Segway in that, I, I put a, put out a tweet last week about CAA agency specifically represents a bunch of players and media talent. It's not very well known. It's known in the industry, but not known publicly. So essentially, I said, does it surprise you that certain players have more positive press, more pres- positive stories? It's it's clear as day once you know what to look for. So the interesting thing once i put that tweet out i had a lot of a lot of journalists more than i thought reach out to me and basically said that we commend you for calling it out it's an issue but even what you stated 
is the bare minimum. It's it's much worse than I even tweeted and spoke about. Um, so I, I since found out that CAA, who represent Woj and are involved with Woj, they heavily run ESPN at the moment. So the, the hirings and firings are dictated by, at least for the basketball part of ESPN, by CAA. So much so that there's a few talented people that have been let go by ESPN as full-time employees. But funnily enough, ESPN values them enough to bring them back at a per day basis or a subcontractor basis because they want them, they want them to be involved, but they had to kind of do it for political reasons. And it's it's an interesting dynamic because people forget that then these CAA the media talent they then vote on all the big awards. So they they generally will vote on all NBA MVP or defensive. They have a lot of power and conflict of interest is is pretty high. And, and human nature tells you that. You know, if you can make your own agency more money or you get told help our guy out, you know, money talks, bullshit walks. I mean, how do you – I mean, you're probably the first you've heard of it, but it's something that I've been watching from afar and you can factor clutch sports into that but in a little bit of a different aspect, not so much with the media, but the fact that they, you know, they can they can actively recruit through LeBron. I mean, how do you, how do you see all this kind of the way the landscape is today? I don't know a lot about the media stuff. You know, it's the first I've sort of, when you were tweeting about it and then we were talking about it, it's the first I've sort of heard about it. It's sort of not my realm, but, you know, what's more valuable than money these days is power. And these agencies are just trying to surround themselves, you know, representing players, representing media. It's sort of like why owners buy NBA teams. You know, you, you, as an owner, you buy a team. Now they're really, teams are really expensive now. But if you bought a team 10 years ago and you bought a team for 400 million and basically you can, it's a PR firm for you because you can get interviewed before games. You can talk to the media. You could put out any message that you want and you have power. That's real power that you really can't buy. A lot of these owners that have all this money that, you know, they're not going to be interviewed before, you know, if they don't have teams, they're in the public spotlight. So, you know, with the agencies, hey, I mean, that's probably, I mean, if that if they're doing that, that have people that they control that have these, you know, they vote on these awards and, you know, they interview their people. I mean, it's just, that's what people are, you know, in, in most sports are doing in walks of life. They're trying to acquire more power. And it's just, it's just how it is. Clutch, same thing. You know, Clutch, you know, they have all these players. They got LeBron who's recruiting for them, you know, and they now they have the stable of players. When free agents become available, they could funnel them to him if, if, if you know, the rep, if the situation presents itself like an Anthony Davis. And so it's, you know, the more things that you could impact in the NBA, you could, you, you could sort of help your clients and you could have just more power and you have more sections of your company that just gives you more and more power. And that's, that's a big thing that probably no one really thought about 10 years ago that, you know, that, that they're getting smart and they're, they're representing more people in, in more entities around the league. And now they have more power for their players. And, and now when you're recruiting players, and you're a big commodity as far as an agency. And, you know, you're recruiting, a, a, say, a draft pick that a smaller agency that's just one person that does a good job. But you say, hey, wait a minute. Look, our agency can get you voted on teams. We can get you more money. We can get you more power. So that's a big, that's a big feather in your cap as an agency if you can control that. I mean, yeah, I don't fault the, the agencies themselves for doing it. I think it's 
it's in the best interest of their business. But I think when you look at the average fan would have no idea. They would just be, you know, blinded to, to what we're discussing right now. And, and, you know, every year when the – it's like clockwork. Every year when the All-NBA teams are announced and the MVP, there's always a few people in the media that just have this these strange votes out of left field, you know, that are just like, how how is that guy even in the running for a vote? And you come to realize that some players might have – something in their contract that says if you garner a vote, you get a bonus. If you, you know, so you, you got to kind of dig deep with some of this stuff and it, it is pretty awkward to talk about at times, but it, it is a reality. And I think there is a whole lot of conflicts that you need to look for. I mean, the other one is the clutch sports thing. LeBron, it's known that he's an active investor. Or I don't know to what capacity with clutch. This is, it's strictly prohibited in the MBPA agreement. It, it's It's outlined in black and white that you cannot, you cannot be an active participant, an agent, or involved with an agency, for, have business interests in an agency, and be in an NBA locker room as a player. But you know, I'm not sure if it's because it's LeBron that it's allowed, or if people are scared, or the, whatever it is. But it comes down to you know, what's the point in having rules if they're not if they're enforced for one? Like you said, if Yogi Farrell opens his own agency and he's actively recruiting people in a locker room, would he get? Would he get pulled up? I think he would. <laughs> you know, it's like I think there's a bit of a double standard there. But just for all the fans listening. You know, dig deep and do do some research and you'll figure things. Sometimes there's a bigger story than just a, why do they vote for this person or why did this player sign with this team? And that's just the unfortunate reality of, like you said, all walks of life, all businesses. But you'd like to think that sport is different and a bit more pure. But I guess that's just the reality of the world today. Bogues, there's a famous college coach that passed away. His name is Jerry Tarkanian, that coach at UNLV. He had a great quote when UCLA was blatantly cheating in the 70s and, you know, with... um you know, getting the players they did. He goes, when the NCAA is pissed off at UCLA, they take it out on Utah Valley State. You know, they, they always get the smaller guy. They never get the the actual person who's doing it if it's a big commodity, you know, and they always say that. Hey, look, I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that LeBron had 88 lawyers looking into it and sort of going through every loophole they needed to do to make sure all their I's are dotted and T's are crossed and, and it's it's sort of legal, but... Like you said, if if a, a smaller player that tried to, you know, tried to do the same thing, I think that he'd probably have a lot more red tape to deal with, and probably not going to be able to do it. It just it just sort of goes to show you what LeBron, you know, like him or not, the guy's you know sort of turned himself into one of the more powerful NBA players that ever lived while he was still playing. You know, like Jordan made a lot of money, but he didn't have a lot of power like that where he has an agency and, 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 you know, affiliated with an agency and did all this. And he made most of his money probably after he played with his Jordan brand. You know, LeBron's got, you know, sponsorships. He's got his own career. He's got a media company. He's got the agency. I mean, it's it's pretty amazing. And the player empowerment thing that he sort of created in, in a movement that he's pushed, you know, I, I don't think the league's going to touch him. You know, the league won't touch it with him especially. But I think he's probably pretty, he figured out how to do it and loophole through it. And with his name, the NBA is probably not going to touch it. Yeah, no doubt. And he's done. he has done a fantastic job with building what you'd call an empire, both on and off the court. But it is something that most fans probably gloss over and don't even notice, you know, but that's just what we're dealing with. I mean, just think about it. Like, he has the agency, right? Like, and, you know, not only can he get big-time players to come to him if, if they have the salary cap like Anthony Davis, but filling out his roster. He could fill out the roster with legitimately making the decisions 
of, hey, I need to bring this guy in, this guy, and this guy in. They're all clutch guys. They're guys that we need, and I want to get clutch guys in to help, you know, help my people. I'll tell you what, I've never seen an NBA player have more loyalty to his people, to his like friends and, and, and people that he's around. I mean, just goes out of his way to to get clutch guys on the roster and and things like that. It's it's amazing that he basically runs the not runs the team, but sort of runs the team. Yeah, and I mean, there's commissions involved as well, and there's there's bottom lines that help the company, and obviously his childhood friend and best friend Rich Paul run run that company. But he does definitely go to bat for you if you win if you're in Team Clutch. Which I guess when I first came in the league, it was. It was big agents were the way to go. So it was yet to sign with a big agency, a big name. At the time for me, it was SFX and that's who I was with. But there was, you know, a bunch of other agencies. And then it kind of started to shift, I guess, probably 2000 and probably 2008, 9, 10, 11, 12. It started to shift because if you were a mid- middle tier player in these big agencies, you were getting the br- the crumbs. You were getting all the marketing deals would go first to the superstar. And then if he didn't want it, it'd go down down the chain. So these middle, middle tier kind of, not superstar, but I'd say star, second, third option guys on teams, they started to get pissed off and they started leaving these big agencies and going to a small mom and pop type setup, an agent that had maybe three or four clients. He'd pick up your call whenever you called. He wouldn't bullshit you or she and- I think it changed to that, but now it's it's kind of starting to swing back the other way again. It's starting to go back to, you know, if you're not with a clutch or a CAA, it's very hard to get traded out of a bad situation. It's very hard to 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 drum up interest in free agency if you're restricted or unrestricted. So for me, just watching it from afar, it's it's been interesting how it's swung kind of backwards and forwards the last 20 years. Yeah. Where you really need the big agent is when you're a restricted free agent. Um you know, I've dealt with a lot of situations with players that I've been friends with or dealt with and they 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 were the smaller agent which I don't mind like you know I don't I think that you know with agencies you, I mean clutch probably could turn a 3 million dollar player into an 11 million dollar player they've done it before but like most people aren't going to get you all that much more money and but if you're a restricted free agent where teams know that your team is going to match your salary and they don't want to like waste their money and get it tied up for 3 3 days during free agency if you don't have a big agency that could call another team and say look if you want to sign x player you better make an offer to y player on you know on the Brooklyn Nets so they they force to match to give them a big raise because the teams are just going to take advantage of it teams are going to give you the lowest dollar if they know that no other team's going to match you know no other team's going to give you an offer sheet that's when you need a bigger agent I, but also like it's unbelievable with with guys that are small have smaller agents where people in locker rooms sort of say hey why are you with x you know x agent and i always tell players like look this player was the one i mean this agent was the one who was helping you when all these other agents wouldn't return your call now that you're good that these these are these other agents are gonna you know now they're gonna talk to you and you're gonna leave your agent when it's time to get paid. There are plenty of agents out there, Bogues, that take advantage of smaller agents. The smaller agent probably has to pay you know probably seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars in expenses to players that they don't get any money on in their rookie deal, and then these other bigger agencies, if that player does well, swoops in right before yep. they have to do the extension, has them fire the smaller agent, and then they take the, say they get a $40 million deal in their extension. Now that's a $1.6 million you know, pay, payday for the agent that they didn't have to do any work to get. And this other guy, this other agent that sort of was with you the whole way, paid all this money 
They, you know, gave you the talk, the pep talks. They were the one that was with you. And then they, they're, you know, they're caught holding the bag for 90, 80, 90, 100,000. And, and they get screwed out of it. It's, yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic. It's a nervous time for small agents when, when a player's on their rookie deal and coming out of that rookie deal because for that exact reason. So I went, I went through it. I was with SFX and then stayed with my my agent, David Bauman, who will get on the pod one day. But he was he's kind of like a medium-tier agent. He wasn't bells and whistles. That's what I liked about him. He picked up my, my calls when I called. He helped with a lot of off-the-court stuff. And he wasn't, he wasn't a $10,000 suit agent. He was just kind of just a regular guy for the most part, like dressed nice and everything, but wasn't bells and whistles, wasn't pulling up in the Maserati or the Ferrari. And that was why I stayed with him. And, and that exact same thing happened to me when it was extension time for me with the Milwaukee Bucks, which I ended up signing a, a five-year, $60 million at that at that time. Right before that, I had a bunch of agents coming to me basically doing that, saying, hey, why are you with this small guy? He's not doing enough for you and all that kind of stuff. And it you know, I told my agent as soon as they came up to me, I said, hey, just so you know, this agent agency is trying to poach me and just FYI. And it's a dirty game, man. It's a dirty game. But if, I'll give you a funny story about what you just said about the – you probably know about this story, the restricted free agency thing and other teams bidding up teams, restricted free agents. Do you remember the Jared Jeffries story? No, I know Jared pretty well, but no, I, didn't, I don't know the story. So apparently when he was with Washington, Washington loved him and wanted to keep him. He was a restricted free agent. So I guess New York had done exactly what you said. They said that they offered him a, a deal that was going to mess up Washington's cap. I don't know what it was at the time. I don't know. It was four years 20 or four years 24, whatever it was. I don't know the numbers, but basically offered a deal to say, you know, let, let's mess with Washington a bit. And then Washington, they didn't match. <laughs> so, they, so apparently New York then obviously brought him in, but they had, I think they had like four or five, five four slash five men playing in, in Jarrett's position who was then molding to more of a four spot, like a point forward. But that's just an interesting story that I heard along the way that someone told me. And I mean, that kind of stuff can happen sometimes too. Yeah, look, like w- with Kevin Durant or James Harden, being an agent for them is pretty easy. You know, Max. it's going to be <laughs> an open and shut deal, right? When I was with Grover, we would do pre-draft training, right? And um, we would work out guys right after the college season's over, getting ready for the NBA draft. And we charged about 10 grand or so to, um, to per guy to work out with us. And that's not counting expenses like living expenses, food and all that stuff. So we, you would have all these like middle, middle of the road guys that are borderline draft guys. And they would sign with these big agencies. And the big agencies may or may not pick up the 10 grand. But I, you know, I would talk to the player and, and I'd be like, you know, what do you, what do you got going? Well, he goes, oh, you know, this big agent's going to get me in the second round of borderline first. And I'm, I'm looking at myself. I said, I don't think this guy can get drafted to go to the fucking army. You know, what are you doing? Like, you know, so, and then what happens is, you know, like they promise them this, they promise them that. And then the guy doesn't get drafted. They stop taking their calls and they end up like getting some jacked up, like, European job at the end and not even a good European job or they go to the D league, you know, and that's why sometimes having the smaller agent or the agent that has a lot of like Mark Bartlestein is really good at, you know, at turning, you know, getting middle of the road guys and getting them paid either in the NBA or getting them great European deals. Like you need an agency and he's a bigger agent, obviously, but like sometimes going to a bigger agent, if you're, a, that's what, if you're like a, a fringe player, isn't the way to go because you're going to get lost in the shuffle. And that's why 
But in some cases, if you're a restricted free agent, you're going to be pretty good. I would go to a clutch or I would go to some of these bigger companies because they definitely have a few GMs on their pay, not payroll, but on their speed dial that would be like, hey, look, they can get that, you know, four year, $40 million deal for that restricted free agent when the team that they're dealing with is like, hey, you know, they're only offering my guy $5 million a year. I need that bump to $10 million a year. I need you to do me a favor. And they're going to, they will offer, they will match it. So don't worry about it. You know, but sometimes, like you said, it might be a Jared Jeffries deal where the, you know, he ends up getting screwed, but. Well, he didn't get screwed. I mean, he, he still got his money, but it was just more the kind of where the Knicks were at and where they've been the last 20 years. They, they, they're they messing in other people's affairs when their own team right. wasn't um, that strong and it actually backfired, <laughs> actually backfired on them. And I think that was when they went through the Zebo era and the I think David Lee was there at the time. And they had They just had a bunch of players that just didn't fit and it was kind of one year in, one year out. I mean, the agency thing is just, it's a whole different world that people- and then you hear it's slimy, but yeah, like you said, I've had I've had some real good friends and teammates that were middle to low tier players that just missed out on getting drafted, and then like you said, their their agents just stop taking their calls, and they're just like, oh, they kind of push you towards signing with someone else because they just don't want to deal with those low level European deals. And I guess the human element of that, where they're telling you you're the best thing when they're recruiting you, and then all of a sudden your stock drops and they just disappear, it, it just hurts your soul sometimes, man. It just really does. Like it just. Because it's such a, a such a fiscal industry, and and look from the agent's point of view, like you said, they don't they don't want to be left holding holding the bag and and covering these players that they know aren't gonna aren't gonna make the money back. So it's it's a tough situation. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've heard stories of like these smaller agents paying a first round pick 150 grand just to sign with them because he's a small agent and needs to and needed to you know because he lost all these players over the years in recruiting because he didn't have anybody on his sheet so he ends up paying this kid 150 grand and the kid you know pays the kid and then the guy signs with them and about two weeks later he leaves them and it ain't, it ain't, it's not exactly where you're an agent saying, you know, going online and saying, you know, tweeting out, hey, this guy owes me 150 grand. You just broke a law. So, you know, it's hard. It's hard being a smaller agent because these bigger, you know, these bigger agencies, look, if you're, if you're a bigger agency and you're representing, say, a billion dollars in contracts and you're getting, say, 2% of that. You know, you could afford to pay out players and recruit them and, and wine and dine them, you know, because you're going to make, you know, you're going to get two billion, you know, a billion dollars at two, at two or three percent, you know, of your commission. So you could afford to have this sort of expense going. If you're a small guy that only has like 10 guys in Europe and maybe two guys in the D League, you're not making a lot of money. You might be making 70 grand a year. And if someone is asking you for 150, you know, in a credit card and in a credit, you know, in a credit rating that you have to go out and, and get that, get them credit and pay for that, that could put you, that could put you in the poorhouse. So, yeah, these big conglomerates, you know, it's um, it's unbelievable that what they're doing as far as what they have for players and and, and some of the power they have around the league. Yeah, it's something we're going to deal with. It's just the way it's going. And it's it's even joining into Hollywood now. A lot of these sports agencies now are, are linked with Hollywood agencies and whatnot. But anyway, what what have we learned the first the first couple of games? What have you seen? I'm sure you, you were on the couch for a long period watching these NBA games over Christmas as I was. And what have we learned the first couple of games? Well, I definitely learned don't try to eat a whole lasagna in one in one half of basketball. That's not going to be pretty beneficial for anybody. I thought you were going to say one mouthful. 
Oh, no. Well, yeah, half a tray of lasagna or one <laughs> mouthful. It's about the same for me. The clip, the Lakers and Clippers are really good. They're above, you know, they're above and beyond anyone else right now, the way they're playing. The Lakers sort of, I know they're one and one, but like the problem with the Lakers, just like most good teams, they're not really going to show up fully until it's either, either A, a big game or B, like closer to the playoffs. But what they did in their second unit with, you know, Montrez, Harrell, you know, um, they just, you know, Schroeder. I mean, they, they've got, you know, they got great, you know, obviously they got great with those two guys with, you know, with LeBron and AD, but the bench they have. And when they turn it on, they're really good. And then the Clippers, I mean, you know, they've, if, if they can keep everything together and everybody healthy, they'll, they're going to be really good. I watched um, the Greek Freak against Golden State, Golden State's, Really struggling. We might be in some trouble with our pick. <laughs> yeah, no bench, lack of you know, lack of firepower. They paid you know, Ubre. They paid eighty-two million dollars. You know, with their with his contract, they had a they had a trade exception, so they they got him from Phoenix. But with the tax, they ended up paying eighty-two million dollars for this kid. And I just like what without Clay Thompson, and obviously you don't have Kevin Durant either. Like you don't have, I don't care about the Kevin Durant deal, but like you don't have that other superstar to 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 give you the firepower. And Draymond's a little banged up. It's it's going to be really tough for them. But I'll, I'll tell you what, Wiseman is really good. You know, I think Wiseman is going to be a, a really good player. You know, he seems like he's someone who they could work with, and you know, they he they could take him. You know, in a couple of years, he'll be pretty good. But with Milwaukee, you know, same thing: the lack of shooting from Giannis that he needs to really address that because it's going to be a problem. It's not going to be a problem during the regular season. He'll put up his twenty-eight, twelve, and do well, and they'll win games in the regular season. But like you said in our last pod, it's in the playoffs. They're just going to. They're going to force him to shoot the ball. They're going to get him to the free throw line and he's going to have to convert. And, you know, he's, he's struggling, man. You know, he's struggling at the line. I think he was like seven for 15. He had some threes last game though and some step backs, which was interesting. I mean, the danger with a player like Giannis that we have seen in the past with guys that attack the rim really well is do they then start to settle for that too much? I mean, he, I don't know where he went. I think he shot, was it four for nine from three or, or three for seven? I mean, it was a decent clip considering how hard some of the shots were, but is he, you know, I think, are we overemphasizing the shooting from three that it gets to a point where then he becomes too comfortable with it? I think it will dry up when the the big games come to town, like the playoff games and it becomes much more physical, but you also, you know, at times during that game, he, he didn't attack as much because they were just giving him, they were dare shooting him into that three or that pull up and he took it and was knocking it down. But, you know, I don't know if we'll see that all year. Yeah, I mean, just as you know, Bose, 72 games is a long time. It's a lot of games. You could have some success in small, in small doses, but, you know, I mean, it's only a couple of games, but right now he's shooting 27 from the three and 56 from the line. So, but the, the free throw is the biggest, the biggest thing for him. He's got to make them, you know, the threes. Hey, look, if you're going to be a 30% three point shooter, you could still survive, especially with someone with talent like his. In the playoffs, it'll be tough, but they're going to wrap him up. And if he if if it starts getting to his head with you know shooting fifty five fifty eight from the line, it's going to be tough. Look, he I like he's got two bad things that he does. His head goes back, you know, on his shot, and he's got a flat shot. And I think you know I, I just remember Rondo like Rondo came to us in Dallas. He was shooting about fifty from the line. Now he worked with a couple of our coaches, you know, with his shot, and then finally at the end we were like we got together and. We just had a lot of arc to his shot, didn't change anything, but just his arc was a lot higher. He ended up shooting like 74 from the line in his last 20 games. And I think that 
is something he he needs to experiment with because you know he shoots a line drive. I mean, if you're JJ Redick and you're shooting a line drive, that's one thing. You're one of the best three point shooters of all time. But when you're someone who's struggling with technique and you you got a flat shot and your technique's off, it's it's going to be tough for him to be consistently making shots. Let me see who else did I watch. Oh, I watched New Orleans play on Christmas Day and watched him play Miami. Zion, I mean, he's you know, and any night he can give you 32 and 12, 32 and 13, but like I think he had 32 and 14 for the game. But again, making basketball plays from the perimeter because of him and Adams in the court at the same time. Lonzo Ball, you don't know if he's going to be consistent shooting the ball. So your spacing is only going to be dictated by Ingram and Reddick. So if those two guys aren't killing it from three, it's, it puts a lot of pressure on you if you have three, you know, three guys that are inconsistent shooters. So obviously, Adams ain't a you know shooter. He doesn't need to be. Zion's, I, I don't think he has the confidence right now. Sometimes, you know, if he gets it going, maybe. And then you got you know Ball, who's who can make him a, uh, occasionally. But I just think they're going to have some spacing issues for sure. They're going to, like you said on the last pod, you're going to have to play Zion at five at sometimes. I'm a huge Stephen Adams fan, so I, I wouldn't want him on the off the floor that long. But you're going to come into some you know times where you know you going to need shooting on the floor and, and you're going you're gonna to need that space around the court opened up. And they've only got one, the only no-leave guy really is JJ, right? I mean, the, the other guys are, are streaky. Ingram's very streaky. I mean, he can go for five yes. or go four for five. Ball's the same. But, I mean, JJ's really the only guy spacing-wise that you're like, do not leave under any circumstances. Even if he's 0 for 10, you're not leaving him. So they don't really mean Josh, Josh Hart. I mean, no. I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's it's definitely the elephant in the room for him. It's going to be tough for them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I always get jealous when you say the elephant in the room because that's obviously me, but that's why sometimes I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> we're going to get hate mail for fat shaming yourself. So just be careful. Ah, self-deprecating. What are you going to do? Are you allowed to do that these days? You might get in trouble, though. I mean, look at me. I'm an unemployed mutant lookalike, 500-pound mutant. I mean, what are they going to do to me? (laughs) Hard to cancel. Yeah. I've I've been canceled since birth. I mean, so what the (laughs) fuck are they going to do to me? So I ended up watching the Dallas game. I I thought they were – they didn't look great yet. There's rumors that Luca came in a little bit out of shape. He's a little pudgy, which I think is the norm for him throughout his career. He's had that – issue in pre-seasons and then always within a couple of weeks gets it down and he's back back firing but they they're obviously something's missing there I'm not sure I'm not sure what they just don't look on the same page and they, they potentially could be they have the Clippers next I don't know if Kawhi's going to play there's rumors that he broke his jaw but they could go on three to start the season so that's you know they're one of the favorites in the west yeah Luca could get you 40 and 20 every night so that kid could eat fucking cake all day long. I can give a fuck less. I mean, the guy's just, he, he comes at you and kills you. I think that they definitely need uh, Porzingis. They need that second, like, star that they can give the ball to and, they, and can create offense. I think what they're struggling with, like I said last pod, they have got they got great role players. You know, Dorian Finney-Smith, Dwight Powell, you know, Maxi Kleber. They got Hardaway. They got Richard um, Richardson. They've got talent, but those guys are limited to what they can do when you just give them the ball and, and ask them to be a playmaker or a scorer. So having Porzingis to take pressure off, I don't think Hardaway is consistent enough to be a third option on a team. I think those guys are really good fourth and fifth options. So you have Luca and a bunch of fourth and fifth options, which isn't a bad thing. Those guys are really good. At, at their role, but they need they need somebody else, and I think Porzingis, his shooting and his ability to score and impact the game, and, and they you know, they'll turn it up defensively. They're going to probably have to do that. I think they got rebounded, they got out rebounded probably by fifteen to eighteen rebounds. I'm not I don't fact check, but 
Uh, I think it's about eight. They got out rebounded by about 18 by the Lakers. So, like, I think they just got to clean some stuff up defensively. They're going to just have to wait until Porzingis comes back. And in the meantime, I think that if I was Tim Hardaway Jr., I would really be, like, trying to work on being consistent every day and giving them, like, that 15 to 18 shooting, you know, shooting a high percentage and, and giving them that third you know, that third score. I just think it's tough. They don't, they have firepower because they could all make threes, but when they need a basket, Luca's sort of the only guy they can go to. Or Boban. I fucking love Boban when they throw it to him in the post. Oh, man, he's a load down there. He's The dude's just, yeah, he's huge and, and phenomenal touch for a big fella. Yeah, I mean, it, it's unbelievable. <laughs> Every time you touch it, the guy, the guy's like Shaq, Hakeem Olajuwon, and Bill Russell all in one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they'll be all right. I think Pozingis will give them an opportunity to, I mean, he likes to catch on the elbow and and off the block a little bit too just to slow things down it seems like the league the league is going 99% pick and roll but i think sometimes where where Dallas gets stuck in that herky jerky pick and roll and they're not finding much out of it historically last season they they could then really punish that 1 through 5 switch with Porzingis and kind of post him up and you shoot over any, anybody so they generally start slow to start most seasons so i think i think they'll bounce back one one we got hate mail for was houston i didn't have them in my eight and i i did that based on james being traded and then most likely getting some picks back with some young talent that need to be developed but that's one that the fans out there have given us some scathing reviews on that houston will be there instead of uh potentially golden state yeah i mean right now probably how golden state's playing i i wouldn't I, I probably wouldn't disagree, but Houston has some issues. Like John Wall has to prove that he can be healthy all year and he can be effective. You don't know what they're going to do with Harden. You don't know if it's, you know, I think they'll be traded pretty soon, but you can't really just guarantee they've, they've lost some stuff from last year. Austin Rivers is a part of their team. They're a little bit banged up. It's just a different dynamic. I really like Steven Silas as a coach. I was with him in Dallas for a year. He's very, very, you know, detail oriented. He's great with people. That's why I thought if they kept everybody together, they would have been pretty good because Steven would have stayed out of the way, like, you know, in the sense that let those guys do what they do. He's not going to mess, you know, mess with Harden or, or Westbrook. And he could draw anything up in a huddle. He's, he's very organized. He's very good. I just think now because of people leaving, you don't know what you're going to get in the James Harden deal. If they go to Brooklyn with the deal and they get a bunch of like high-end role players that really aren't difference makers, but are good players. Like if they get, that'll be different than if they trade for Simmons or they trade for somebody else. I, I think it will be Simmons, but I, I can't just say they're going to be an eight, but looking at Golden State or where they are, I, I think that right now, if I would I was a betting man, which thankfully I'm not, I'd probably go with, uh, I'd probably go with Houston, but you know, who knows? It's so Speaking early. of betting man, did you see Charles Barkley and his bet? Did you see that? $100,000, right? On uh, Portland. <laughs> Like what, what, what's mm-hmm. going on there? He, he, so for those that don't know, Charles Barkley went on record and said he will put $100,000 that the Portland Trailblazers will make the NBA Finals so they'll win the West. And I don't know what he's smoking. I mean, who the fuck doesn't like Charles Barkley though? I mean, Barkley's I love the best. Him. He gives no shits, but that was one I was just, I'm like, is there something we need to know? Is there a, a girl that he used to know that lives in Portland and he wants to do the finals telecast from Portland for four games. There's something more. There has to be something more to it because, I mean, look, I, I know Terry Stotts played for him for two years. I just think they're just stuck in that five, six to, to 10 bubble every year and 
we played them when I was at Golden State. They're probably their best year where they were, they were competitive and we beat them pretty easily. But um, they, they obviously had to keep running into Golden State during their year I was there and then the big three year. So, but I just don't see it. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't know what they do. I think they they need to make some moves down the track because it just doesn't. It's just not working there. Well, here's the thing. His you know his gambling record. I mean, he's he's lost a lot of money gambling. I don't know if he'll actually make the hundred thousand dollar bet or not. But a people are talking about it, and yeah. b if even if he doesn't do the bet or he does, and they say, say they get to the finals and they get hot, like now we could say, well, I, you know, I I said it before, and I think that's a big thing these days, saying that I was the first guy to come up with it. But uh, I fucking love Charles Barkley, man. I I could. I could listen to him all day long. He's a he's a funny bastard. He's an everyday man, isn't he? Yeah, he's, he says what a lot of people are thinking. He's not too doesn't sugarcoat things too much, and he's my kind of guy too. Uh, Did you see his face when uh, KD when Durant didn't answer him? <laughs> yeah. It was fucking hilarious, man. It was hilarious. It's like memed all over the internet. Like, yeah, he's awesome. I've met him a few times, and he's he's exactly how he is off camera too. By the way, for the most part, when I've had interactions with him, he's jovial, he's perky, he's joking, talking shit, and I, I enjoyed the times I, I kind of ran into him. But moving on from that, we'll we'll get to the. Hopefully, you did your homework and read up on the NBL a little bit. But if you didn't, there were a few issues with our league. We are starting in in mid January, as you know. The two New South Wales teams, which is Sydney and Illawarra. That state has a, had a little cluster of COVID, so there's been some shambles where they've had to get them out as soon as possible. I've spoke to the GM there. They're basically moving them to Melbourne, and they're going to base them down there because you can get to other states from Victoria, Melbourne, Victoria, as of now with no restrictions. There are a few interesting things to note. Um, it, it now takes the season up to a 36-game total because they're doing a mid-season cup that we spoke about last week. The players took a 50% pay cut going into, into the season, not knowing that they'd play more games and not knowing there'd be a cup. So more than a few players are pretty frustrated. They took a pay cut without knowing the specifics of what was going on down the track. And then the, the follow-up to that was... The Sydney Kings and, and Illawarra Hawks are moving to Melbourne. The league is only paying for 20 people to come. So they're basically moving basically into state for their whole season and being based elsewhere. And 20 people doesn't get you fires, you know, pro. You've got you've got 12 rostered players, you've got three assistant coaches, and then you basically you got a guy that's supposed to be, you know, taking care of the gear, you've got the physios, you've got a masseuse, you've got a media person. So they've they've left them a little dry. Um, and that's been interesting. But yeah, the fifty percent thing has been a little bit controversial with players. I mean, what do you I mean my 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 concerns and my opinion on it was that you know, if this cup goes well and they make some money, maybe they, they give 10% back or 20% back to the players to, as, as a thank you for making it all work. I mean, what are your thoughts on it? I just think with COVID bogues, it just puts a monkey wrench in everything. Yeah, I think that a player, it's tough for players because they are expected their salary. They got to take, they got to take pay cuts. It's sort of like the reverse of the NBA, right? Where the owners are taking a lot of the financial responsibility and the players sort of are getting paid most of their regular money. But right now, there's not a lot of options for players. So I, I would be pissed if I was a player for sure. But what are they going to do? They, they don't really have much leverage in this and they just have to probably do the best they can with it. And, you know, there's really not many other places that they can play. It just, it sucks. It, it definitely does. But again, with international basketball being in such a, you know, sort of a volatile situation with, you know, with the finances of things, they got, I just think they're forced to, they're just sort of forced to do whatever the league tells them to do. And yeah. they could be pissed, but, you know, what's their other option? They can not play and not get paid 0%. 
Yeah, and I would agree. I mean, I was on record when this 50% um, pay cut was introduced. I was for it because my wording basically was everyone's going to eat a shit sandwich because of what's going on with, with COVID. But I guess just the frustrating thing from the player's point of view is you now – you have to do what you got to do, but you're moving players away from their families for three or four months in a hub and you're playing extra games that I guess that's the the, the, the frustrating point for the players. But I mean, they'll figure it out. The leagues, uh, hopefully they, they there's no more cases and spikes within Australia that close the borders, but it's been, yeah, like you said, I guess everywhere around the world has different issues with COVID and we just got to try to navigate 2020, 2021 and hopefully on the other side of it, we can get fans back in arenas and, and, and get to all that. One uh, one piece of advice I would say is if, if a girl knocks on their door asking them to do a COVID test, do not invite her in the room. <laughs> Take the temperature before and after. Yeah, probably not. Yeah, do not invite her. Don't do, let them slide that shit under the door. Do not fucking let her in. <laughs> There's a case to be, you know, if you're a home team and you've got a, a big playoff series, you know, there could be some some little fireworks you can throw along the way, you know, send some local local dancers as per se to players' rooms and see what happens, you know. That could be some- Yeah, why not? A strategic play. Some, some teams could really ratchet up that home court advantage. But anyway, let's get on to the Q&A. We've got six more to get through real quick. I'll get it rolling. Pat Keane from Warnable, Victoria. Good question I found. It was, was there a time and day that you realized that you weren't going to get to that 2009-10 All-NBA level again or first as a first, second option on an NBA team again? And how did you go about dealing with that? Do you ever think what could have been with no injuries? So I'll answer the first one. The injuries thing for me, it is what it is. I've been very lucky. I still managed to play 14 years in the NBA, 15 years as a professional. Yeah, I could have went a different direction, but I mean, if I didn't sign with the University of Utah, I could have went a different direction. I mean, the smallest nuances throughout a career and building up your career can change things on the whim. And if you told me I'd have a 14-year NBA career, even if some of it looked like I was running in a straitjacket, I would still take it. But the thing with the 2009, 2010, yeah, that, that was a big transition for me. I was the number one option in Milwaukee basically from 2007, 8 to 2011, kind of the franchise guy. And that's where, you know, there's a lot of issues with star players and guys that go to other teams is then sometimes you're asked to buy in to be a role player and, and and as hard as it was to hear when I first got to Golden State and I wasn't getting as many post touches I'd be an idiot to say hey Clay I need more touches down there hey Steph I need more touches you guys are shooting too much you know I'd be out of there on the first plane smoking so I understood that as from a team aspect that I can still play an important cog let me go and get 10 rebounds and block three shots and absolutely light up 10 people with some screens get a moving one every now and then but free up playing Steph and we've got a chance to be a good team and um, once I bought into that, I was happy to become the third or fourth, fifth option on that team. And pro, I guess that's the hardest part for most NBA players is once you've been the top of the mountain on your team and the man on your team and you're on, you're on the, all the billboards for your said city and then going to a team where someone might ask you to come off the bench a la Andre Iguodala or someone might ask you to, we're only going to play you 20. That's, that's probably the biggest battle you see for most players, right? Yeah. I mean, Boggs, I'm not going to do this much, but I'll, I'll give you a compliment um, you know, it's sort of like my wife complimenting the way I look. So, I'll, I, you know, <laughs> she'll throw one every year. What I will say is you're a winning player. You know, I think winning players have to look to themselves in their mirror and say, you know, depending on what situation they're in, and they got to go situation to situation and they're going to see how am I going to help this team win? 
you're not going to help. You weren't going to help Golden State win with all those superstars, you know, that could shoot the three and do what they do by saying, I want 15 post touches on the block. It, it just wasn't going to help. I mean, what you were going to do is you're going to play make out of the elbow. You were going to roll hard to the rim. You're going to pass. You're going to, you know, make great passes when you ca- caught it on rolls. You're going to, you know, run the floor. You're going to set great screens and you figure out ways to win. And a losing mentality is. You know, especially when you knew, you know, when you know that you're not at that level anymore where you can demand that and you continue to try to do it and you bitch and complain and you're a bad teammate, you keep complaining to the press. That's not the way winning players work. That's why you and Andre Iguodala, those type of players, you guys are winning players because you both came from superstar situations where you were a star early on and then later in your career, you have to, you know, you sort of have to transition. And not many players do a good job at transitioning to how am I going to help this team win? If you're a player, I think that's at any level. You have to look yourself in the mirror and say, is this really helping myself, helping this team win? And the second question, actually the first question you have to ask yourself, is winning really important to you or do you want to put up numbers? You know, because that they can't coincide sometimes where you can do both. Not many players can carry a team and win. You know, a lot of teams, ha- a lot of players have to be role players to help teams win. That's where I yeah, stand. and it's a hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. Like I'm not going to lie, like it's you know, it's confronting because you get to a new team and you think you're going to be all the hoopla around the trade. We're bringing this player in; he's going to change our franchise. And then they're like, we don't need you to do exactly what you did. We want to tweak it a little bit. And yeah, it takes a day or two for you to realize like I'm not going to get those touches. So there's you know, but at the same time, it took pressure off me to really focus on locking up the paint, being a big voice out there for calling out screens and, and being an anchor defensively and, and letting, you know, essentially having a bag of popcorn to throw it to Clay and Steph and watching the two of the best shooters in the world do what I can, kind of like a football player at the line, just just taking people out left, right and center to try and get them open. And that was my role. I was happy to do it. I got a championship ring out of it. So good question. Moving on to the next one, Corey Bell from Geelong, Victoria. Draymond Green has on numerous occasions praised you for teaching him how to guard the five spot. Obviously, he's super talented with mobility and his wingspan. But what would be the keys to be a successful five-man defensively that you've passed on to him in regards to positioning to be able to read the play and be in the right spot. So when I was a rookie, I had a veteran named Irvin Johnson, not Irvin Magic Johnson, just Irvin Johnson. He was a seven-footer, played for Seattle many moons ago, and then towards the end of his career, they kind of brought him into Milwaukee when I was a a rookie to try and help mentor me. And he was great because he pulled me aside numerous times. The NBA has different rules around, first of all, arm bars. When I came to the league, the post game was was big. There was a lot of big dudes. So you had to kind of know how to hold your ground. And he just taught me the nuances of, of you can have an arm bar extended here. You can grab their hip with one arm. You can kind of steer them and get a little cheap push when they shoot a hook shot. The referee doesn't notice. All those little nuances in a game that you can get away with things and not give up as much ground as you should to Shaq and all those kind of things. He taught me. So when I became a veteran and had rookies, I did the same thing to them. It's kind of like passing the torch on of what you've learned is your responsibility then is to do it to the next player. So Draymond was my rookie and he was... Funnily enough, Mark Jackson tried to play him at the three, um, which Draymond Green will go on record and say he was he was one season away from a plane trip to Europe and playing in Europe. But then once we we figured out we could play him more at the four and even the five at times, at times the bigger guys he'd struggle with. So it was just a matter of pulling him aside and saying, "Hey, this is this is how you can get away from 
away with things. Um, you can you can hold here, you can grab here. They don't notice this as much. You might get one of these whistles a game. And then also from a, a help side perspective, I guess in the NBA, the, the biggest thing I taught him was if you're a help side defender, especially in the NBA, you've got LeBron turning the corner or Kevin Durant, meet them early because you're going to end up on a poster. You're going to end up getting dunked on. If you think you can meet him at the rim like you did in college, not going to work in this league. So I always stressed that you get two feet outside the paint on your help side rotation if they then throw it to your guy for a layup or a dunk, that's your backside rotation help and you cast them out. And the beautiful thing in that Golden State Warriors team, we were so in sync that we knew I was always going to go help early. So Andre knew he was going to crack back early on my man and, and vice versa. But I guess it, it comes from experience. Draymond's a very high IQ guy, knows his basketball back to front, can read plays on the fly. And to be a good de- big defender and help side defender, you got to kind of be early. Um, would you agree with that, Pro? Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and I think it was it's so important to have, like you said, with Irvin Johnson. In Dallas, we had Zaza Pachulia that would work with Dwight Powell um, early on in his career. Uh, after practice, would play one-on-one, teach him all those things. And I think that Draymond having, and, and I think he was instrumental to Dwight's you know development as a post-defender. With Draymond being such a, and I think he's got such a great sort of combination of competitor, basketball IQ and toughness that is going to help. And I think what helps young players defensively too is getting their ass kicked a couple of times where you're making a million mistakes and learning from those mistakes, having coaches that are going to break down film with you and and teach you like sort of correct your mistakes. And I think that Draymond probably had a, a learning curve, but he probably had good vets that taught him. And, you know, uh, he ended up being a high-end defender, all-NBA all, all defender. And I just think when you have basketball IQ and you could sort of figure out why you do well and why you don't, I think when you have that much of a basketball IQ and competitiveness and, and you sort of go through the sort of the mistakes phase of your career, that you're gonna be you're gonna be really good. You just have to sort of be patient and work through it. Yeah, and, and just for everyone out there, high IQ basketball players love playing with high IQ basketball players. So Andre Iguodala, very high IQ basketball player, he would lose his shit if you were if you if you weren't near his level or at least above an average level of basketball IQ, he wouldn't give you the time of day. And I'm talking about he would he would be on your ass and he would be you know, basically going to management, like, get this dude the hell out of here. Like, he doesn't fit in here. And because it does become frustrating if four guys are on the same page and that fifth guy's not not adept to thinking on the fly and, and moving quick basketball like you guys, it, it does um, get a little bit helter-skelter. So, thanks for the question. We'll go to three. Dave from Logan in Queensland. Loving the podcast. The only thing I like about painting the house during my Christmas holidays. So, just make sure you concentrate and get all those spots. But which opposing center during your NBA career talked the most trash or the most shit? Is there anyone out there that surprised you the most about what came out of their mouths? For me, it wasn't a center. It was Kevin Garnett. Um, he was... When I came to the league, he was with the Wolves, but he wasn't as chirpy with the Wolves. They weren't that good when I first got in the league. They were kind of dwindling away from their their peak. And then he obviously went to Boston. I don't know if you had much to do with him, pro, but he was he was he had a history for going at international players or predominantly white players. Like he would, especially young guys. If you were a rookie, he'd he'd prod you and poke you and and, and try to gain a reaction to see what you were going to do. And I, I remember he was he was talking shit to me one game. I think one of them, the highlights is on YouTube, but I, I would always do whatever he did to me, I'd do back just as hard. And then he then he started leaving me alone. Um, he knew that he'd get it back. So he was he was a guy that talked a lot of a lot of shit and did a lot of a lot of just, you know, little prodding, little elbow here and there. I remember we were in a jump ball one year and he was he wasn't in the jump ball with me. He was out on the outer circle, kind of ready to box each other out and he'd 
he'd stand on my foot before the referee threw the ball up. You know, he'd do shit like that to just try and get in your head. So he was probably the biggest. I mean, to be honest, most of shit talking in the NBA is, is just a run of the mill, I'll see you after the game threats, which I just laughed my ass off every time I heard because I knew nothing was going to happen after the game. But for every now and then, you'd, you'd see guys have a little scuffle in the, the parking lot or the loading dock, but maybe one out of a thousand times. So Garnett would be my guy. I mean, I don't know if you've been involved too much with the shit-talking side on court or hearing stuff, but do you have anyone that comes to mind? Well, first of all, uh, with the Celtics thing, uh, ironically enough, a year after uh, I left the Celtics, they won a championship. They went from a fucking lottery team to, the, to a championship. So that that shows you- recipe for success. Yeah, you're welcome, Boston. So that's first. Second, I would say uh, not centers, but Garnett was a shit talker. But Russell Westbrook, to me, I mean, he's an angry dude, man. He talks to everybody. He talks to the fucking guy selling nachos, uh, you know, up in the fucking upper deck. He just he doesn't stop. I mean, he, you know, he. I think it just sort of amps him up, and he just keeps talking to everybody. And uh, he was probably one of the worst. Just guys that are just talking to everyone. I think it motivates him. I still remember the bubble. Do you remember the bubble last season? The uh, towards the end of the year, the players were finally could have their family uh, come to yeah. games. Yeah, and they've got like the wife and kids sitting s- sideline. He's he's hitting a shot and turning around and like cussing the cussing the wife and baby out. <laughs> yeah, he's unbelievable. Plays. Like just gives no fucks, and he that's his motor, right? That's what got him to where he's at. But he's definitely yeah. uh, I can I can attest. He's an angry man out there for sure. Kobe loved him. Like Kobe told me the two players, I think I said this before, the two players that he he emu like he he really loved to be play against were Rondo and Westbrook. Ironically, he was talking shit to Rondo's brother. Remember he got him thrown out? Yep. He got That's Rondo's right. brother yeah, thrown yeah, out. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's just he Kobe says that kid is fucking Mike. He goes, That kid is fucking angry. And he's one guy that, you know, he he matches me as far as intensity. And you know, he is, and he just keeps talking to everybody. I just think it gets him riled up, and man, is he good. I mean, he just, yeah, but Garnett is tough, too. Like, I, I, I worked a camp uh, with Carl Anthony Towns and right after his rookie year, and, and Garnett was there for it, and he goes, he just talks shit. He doesn't stop talking. He talks to imaginary players, imaginary people. He just doesn't <laughs> stop talking. It's, it's pretty interesting, but that fucking Garnett, man, is he, you know, that just sort of got him good. I mean, it just... It's probably just part of his wiring, and then, and that's what he needs. To, Especially to get with eighty two games, I think with eighty two games, you're game thirty four in Indiana, and it's minus five outside. I think a lot of these guys kind of use that to to get themselves going more than more than to to, to go up. You, it's more. I need to get myself going. I'm going to try to start a fight with someone or, or do something. And I've yeah. been, I've been there before. I've done similar things to try and get amped up, and not so much you know, shit talking, but having a bad game, I might just hard foul someone and stare at them and just see what happens, and hopefully he gets the team going. But Thanks for your question. Yeah, try being the guy that, you know, fucks up my Big Mac order at McDonald's. You want to talk about shit talking. (laughs) But I digress. Go ahead. Jeremy from Sydney. Talk about your relationship with Mark Jackson during your time at the Warriors. I heard it wasn't the best. I wouldn't say it wasn't the best. I, I had I had respect for Mark from the point of view that he was part of the culture rebuild for us. He was definitely a, a, a cog in, in all that. But I think he got us to to where we could get, and that was that was kind of it. You know, Mark, without sugarcoating it, was somewhat running a a church recruitment group within an NBA locker room. To put it bluntly, um, there was. He was very big with with religion, which is fine with me. I mean, I have no issue with anyone being religious. I, I kind of draw the line when it becomes a door knocking recruiting process, which it kind of felt like at times. Um, but as far as culturally, the guys loved him for the most part. It was misreported that 
I hated him or didn't get along with him. It was probably more in the middle. I wasn't a huge fan of his, but I definitely didn't love uh, love to hate him or anything like that. But funny story for you, Pro. That all stemmed because the, the, the group, the NBA is a pretty religious league um, as much as people like to believe it isn't. It's a very Christian league, born-again Christian, that kind of stuff. And Mark Jackson had his own church in LA. So we go out to, to LA for a road trip and he basically says, I, I want – you know, anyone who wants to come to my church are more than welcome. So there was somewhat a, a theory that you kind of had to buy into that to get minutes or to be well liked within the group. And you know me, pro, like I don't, I'm not buying into any any extra bullshit that I don't need to buy into. So they they get a bus, and I think I was the only guy I think that didn't go. Maybe me and one other guy. I think Ognyan Kuzmich was a European dude didn't go, and and, and me right. And, and Kuz could barely speak English so they probably put that down to he, he couldn't even read the schedule properly but they knew I could read the schedule so I didn't go and so then it got spun in the media somehow or t- sorry to the players in the locker room that that I was you know into the devil and <laughs> like a devil worshipper and no one had ever asked me I was born and raised Catholic my father's b- uh, born again Christian like I've you know, I've been religious at times in my life and no one ever asked me. It was just a matter of, he didn't come to my church. That's disrespectful. Everyone else came. And I guess there was some animosity from that because I just didn't buy into that side of things. I was there to work and play basketball. Obviously, you know, buy into team, you know, what we're doing X's and O's and the culture of it. But as far as the extracurricular activities, like I just didn't buy into it. So that probably caused a bit of tension there, but obviously Mark moved on and and then we continue to have success. So an interesting one. You got any, got any comment for me there, Pro? <laughs> Shocker that you were the only people that didn't go. It, it really shocks me on that. But sometimes it bogues with that stuff and, and maybe you would say yes or no. I, I would say that sometimes you just don't work well with people. I mean, I've had it. I had it in Dallas in places in Boston and, you know, working with Grover. Like there are people that you work with that you just don't, you, you, you just don't work well with. Now you get along. Like if you went out to dinner or whatever, you might get along with. But one, one end or another, like when it comes to like the job and especially in NBA season when everybody's just all, all this pressure, you know, that you don't even see. And you just don't work well with people and with with a specific person for one reason or another. So, and there's nothing you're gonna be able to do with it. It's just the, how you're wired versus how they're wired. It's tough, but I think if you bring religion into basketball, and it's sort of like the political thing, right? And we won't even get into it, but like I, I just think there's certain things you don't bring into an NBA locker room. You don't bring in, you know, politics or religion because that stuff just that's a powder keg. What's well, anywhere? I mean. Politics, religion, yeah. and money, right? Don't bring those up at a yeah. at your Christmas dinner or your Thanksgiving dinner. And now as a society, we that's kind of the forefront of every conversation. Yeah. And if if they're gonna force it on you and you're gonna think that, you know, you, you could play more minutes by sort of going to his church, I'd 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 call bullshit too, to be honest with you. I'll be like, This this is you know, this is not anything to do with what we're trying to do here. You know, if you, hey, look, if you want to go to the church, great. If you want to do that, awesome. But don't force it on me. And if I want to go, I'll go. If not, I won't go. But yeah, I, I would, I would be a little uncomfortable with that, to be honest with you, as well. I wasn't even, I wasn't even that uncomfortable. Like to be honest, I just did my own thing. It was like, fuck. Like I respect if you want to go and want to have your little thing, and five or six, ten players go, yeah. cool. Like I'm just not going to go. I'm going to go get my meal and and chill out in my room. But I, I didn't think it caused issues, but apparently it did. But yeah, I agree. I think those three topics they're causing a lot of a lot of issues in society today as we can see when we look out our window and watch our TVs but that's a that's a whole story for another day no question Simon from Miranda New South Wales type in Andrew Bogut fight and there's quite a few videos that come up 
Just wondering if there's any lingering beef after an altercation or is it more a team-specific thing? And the example, funnily enough, that's why I chose this question, was Warriors versus Clippers over the years playing each other so much. So little little story with that. When I got traded from Milwaukee to Golden State, I didn't play that half of the year. I'd broken my ankle. So that was 11-12 season. So going into 2012-13, I also was still rehabbing. I had a micro fracture on my ankle that was supposed to be a year rehab. So I missed a lot of that year. But I started to notice the Clippers were Lob City at that time. So a pretty intimidating team to go into their building. They're throwing lobs. Everyone was shitting themselves about being on a Blake Griffin poster. You got Chris Paul talking shit and his old swagger and that whole deal. And they had a couple of tougher guys, perceived tougher guys like Matt Barnes and whatnot. So they were, they were a tough team. They never really got over the hump, but they were a tough team. And they were kind of where we wanted to get to or, or, or beyond. Um, Chris Paul had, the, I don't know if you remember that he had the, the State Farm commercials and Steph Curry was his little sidekick. So it was, we went into those games. I started to notice like we had a lot of guys that would get up tight going into those games, like with the Clippers. It was just, they intimidated us for some reason. And we'd go into the game and look up at quarter time and we'd be down 18 and basically our faces would be blank and the game would be essentially over, right? So once I finally... Got back out there for, I think, the last 30 games of the season leading into a playoff run. We, we played them in, in LA and we were down you know 10 or 15 points in the fourth. The game was close to over. And I remember um, DeAndre got a deep catch and he was about to dunk it. So I, I wrapped him up pretty hard, like just gave him a hard foul, put him to the free throw line. And he gave me a shove, and that's the highlight you're referring to. And I, I was like, nah, man. Like, I went straight back at his throat and pushed him back, and he stumbled back. And without touting my own horn, I think that was the moment where it was like, no, nah, fuck you guys. Like, we're fighting you now. Like, this is this is going to turn. This this table's going to turn. Like, this Lob City shit and all the stuff that you've been doing to us the last couple of years. I mean, I'm not going to mention one of my teammates, but one of my teammates would go into that game in a panic he would struggle going into it because he just never played well. He'd always he'd get dominated in his position. And then it was like, to all those guys, it was like, no, nah, we're not doing this anymore. And and then it turned quickly after that. We played them in the playoffs the following year, I think it was. They beat us in a seven-game series. And then after that, it was over. Like Steph was like, no, nah, I'm not your little brother anymore, CP. It got awkward between them two because CP kind of – Chris Paul had Steph as his little brother and Steph was like, no. Nah, you're my little brother now. Like, and then I don't know if you remember, he made him fall over on that one crossover and hit the jumper. And then I started matching up on Blake and played him really well. And then we just we just never never lost to him anymore after that. And then ended up winning a championship and and their team got blown up. So I'm not I'm not sure if you remember that phase because you were with probably Dallas at the time, but it was a it was a big cultural change for us in Golden State. Hey, look, at some point you gotta stop taking it, right? And you gotta start, you know, sort of putting up a stand or it's gonna happen. You know, it's going to happen repeatedly without question. Without question. No doubt. I got a fight story. I don't think I ever told anyone this one. And uh, this could be story time with pro actually, but I don't know. Maybe, you know, we'll see what happens. But so we were playing Houston. It was a few years ago. It's back to back at Houston and then the next day against us at home. So we play at Houston and, you know, I I get there usually a couple hours. I'm usually the first one on the court with the young guys uh, in pregame. So, we're working out. Usually in a city, they'll have a couple of rebounders for you, you know, to rebound balls. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, a 30-minute workout will, if I'm rebounding, will last, you know, you'll get about three shots up because (laughs) by the time I wobble off to get the ball, I mean, I could lose 40 pounds by just running after the ball once. But so, there was nobody there on our side for like the first 45 minutes. And I don't care if they're not going to be there, you know, just sometimes scheduling. But an assistant coach on Houston was shooting around and he had three rebounders shooting around. And I'm like, what the fuck? 
are you serious? And like, cause I take that stuff real serious. Like we had in, you know, as you knew, know Bogues, we had like 12 interns in, in Dallas. Yeah, so they rebound past. They hated you. They hate, oh, they hated me for they sure. Hated you they loved me and hated me. Oh, you would you break their nuts nonstop, man. This shit was hilarious. Without question. And um, so we had to rebound ourselves basically the whole time. Now, I don't know if the coach knew or didn't know, but I was fucking pissed. You know, because like our, all our guys, all our assistants had a rebound and it's just not professional. I made sure every game there was two to four rebounders to rebound for the other team when they came in our building because I want the assistant coaches just to pass the ball and let, you know, let, the yeah, other, yeah. let our guys do that stuff for them. So nobody, and I'm fucking pissed. I can care less about wins or losses, Bogues. You know that. <laughs> it's the finer things. <laughs> Food on the plane, busting balls. And just trying to help our young guys get better. Those are the only three things I really give a fuck about. And when now the next day they came in, I met with our interns. I said, if one of you motherfuckers grab one rebound, I want you to sit down in the stands while they fucking get their own rebounds. And they, they, I said, if one of you guys get a rebound, I'm, I'm, you're going to be fired or you're just not going to do anything. You're going to sit down for the rest of the year. So they don't rebound. Now, when you when we play back to back, you know, we usually we you know, we don't do a shoot around the next day. We usually meet at the arena and do shoot around in in our gym that's can you know inside the arena. So Houston starts getting pissed because they see all these ball, basically interns that should be rebounding for them sitting down. And I and they said, nah, we're not rebounding for you. So Trevor Reza and some guys, Trevor Reza especially, gets fucking pissed. He's kicking balls into the upper deck. He's swearing at people. He's just pissed that he's like the re the, the, no one's getting his rebound. His workouts all messed up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So like in the game, I forgot when, but he I was gets there, man. Fight. I was there for this. You dumb fuck. I oh was, yeah, I was there for this. I remember this. Keep going though. I remember this story. I can chime in a little bit. Go. So he gets in a fight with Salah Mejri for one reason or another. I, I never really got the true story, but he was pissed beyond pissed to the fact that he got thrown out, and then after the game, he's like in our tunnel, like in like near our offices, yeah. waiting for fucking Salah to come out. But ironically enough, I could have started that, but. Um, yeah, so that was. I, know, I that remember was that it. Story, so, so we're in the game, and you know, Salah mumbles at the best of times, and he's got a thick accent. He's from Tunisia, right? And he he gets into it with Trevor, and he mumbled something under his breath. And I think Trevor thought he said something about his mum, right? So he's like, "What did you say about my mum?" And Salah's like, "I didn't say. I did not say anything about your mum." And he's like, "What did you say about my mum, man?" And then I guess after like two or three back and forth, Salah was like, "Okay, fuck your mum." <laughs> so so Trev's just gone like like crazy gets thrown out of the game so i walk out of the locker room and right outside our locker room door trevor reese is sitting in his full game gear in his shoes socks everything just sitting in a chair so i walk out i'm like i kind of know trev like we had battles when he was in houston with um golden state and he, we have a mutual respect we got into it heaps of times like going back and forth because i was moving on screens and laying him out whatever but my like, trev man you're right man he's like yeah man i'm good i'm like dude, what are you doing? He's like, go and get Salah for me. And I'm like, come on, dude. Like, don't do this, man. I said, like, you, it's not worth it. The league's going to fine you $100,000, $200,000. Bro, it's not worth it, man. Just go. And he's like, go and get him for me. So I like walk back in. I'm like, look, Salah, man, just just go out a different, you know, in our locker room at, at Dallas, you could go through two or three different doors to get out of there. I said, dude, just go through a different door, man. The dude's waiting for you at the front. I don't care. I will go and mess him up. I don't care. You know, you know, Salah is. So he fires back up. I'm like, oh God, here we go. 
So I come back out. I'm, this is me. Like my reputation in the league is starting fights. I'm trying to play peacemaker. I'm like, Trev, just go, man. Just get on your bus, dude. Like it's it's not a, you know, he didn't mean it. He, the guys barely speak, you know, English is his second language and all that fun stuff. And it's funny you bring that up because it was he, he sat there for a good 30 minutes. He didn't leave. So I, I Oh my God, yeah. I ended up going to my I said, oh, all right, cool. I've tried. I've done my good grace. I've tried for 10, 15 minutes and, and I left. And I guess they ended up getting Salah through a side door and it was all forgotten about. But it's funny you bring that up because that, that was a hilarious story. I was going to send him to Mark Jackson's church to calm down, but that shit didn't work. <laughs> he would have got more playing time if he did. Last question comes from Angus in Brisbane. Obviously, a lot of the league gets high as in weed, but how often are players hide during practice weights games? Any stories of a player hiding out in a locker room trying to light it up? So I didn't see a lot of it uh, kind of point blank. Like there's, there's no – guys aren't lighting up in practice or weights or games. There's an argument from the Players Association that it should be made legal. Look, I think it can't be any worse than putting anti-inflammatories in your body to make yourself feel good. And I think if you, if you don't have a game and you want to have some weed the night before and chill out and relax, and, and I think just the pressure and the winning and the losing and the anxiety and the flying and the road trips and the lack of sleep, if you want to do that, I, I have no issue with it. I think the issue – from the league's point of view, is if you make this legal, you're going to get guys playing high. It's going to happen, and that's something that you, then you've got to figure out and deal with. Like I can guarantee you there'll be some some guys that are smoking the day of a game. And I know it used to happen back in the day in the NBL, back in the, the 2000s. I had a couple of teammates tell me that a few guys coming from predominantly American guys would be just smoking, smoking a doobie on game day, and it was kind of the normal thing to do. So I think it's a good – thing for your your mind and body and people really enjoy it like i said i think anti-inflams are much worse for you especially long term but i think um the issue is on a game day not only that then guys let's say they they have it and they have to drive home come flying in from a city and they they, they maybe smoke a joint or something getting off the plane they're gonna go to drive so there's all those issues to deal with but if you're in the comfort of your own home you don't have a game i have no issue with it what about yourself bro yeah, I, I don't. I don't really have. I had one story though. It, it, no one actually smoked weed, but we had. Uh, remember Ricky Davis? Yeah, I remember Ricky Davis. So Ricky Davis is a. I mean, from what I've heard, was a huge weed smoker, right? So in Boston, in the locker rooms, I would always hang out with um, this guy Johnny Joe, who was the equipment guy, who was fucking hilarious, one of the funniest guys I've ever met in the NBA, and we would always hang out. And before games, Red Auerbach, before he passed away, would come and sit in Doc Rivers' office and talk to Doc, just talk, you know, shoot the shit and smoke his cigar. So Ricky Davis walks by the door and he goes, yo, Red, blaze up, dog. And he gave a peace sign and walked out of the gym. I fucking, I, <laughs> I lost it. I thought it was one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Imagine telling an, a Hall of Fame, yeah. best coach, best GM ever, <laughs> blaze up and this guy's like <laughs> red just shook his head and just like what the fuck you know, it, was, it was it was pretty oh, that's funny. great yeah but I, I i never really have many weed stories at all about guys playing high i mean it's getting it's getting more prominent like now that's it's in those what are they called the um the pens that they they smoke out of those those vape pens i think they can put some sort of seeds in there now so it's, it's changing but edibles too oh yeah the edibles who was that dion waiters in miami didn't he take a? Didn't he eat a yeah. bunch of edibles and get on the plane and was like trying to fly the plane and shit? <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, I mean, give me a fucking break. I mean, yeah. give me a break. But yeah, I mean, look, like I said, I think it's a matter of time before someone's high on a game day and does something stupid. But um, I mean, predominantly when you're high, you're probably moving a bit slower, so it'll be pretty noticeable. Yeah. All right, that wraps up Q and A. Um, we'll get to story time with Rogue Bogues and Pro, but. 
I'll do I'll do a, a decent one. It's it's nothing too crazy or funny. It's my first road trip in the NBA as a young fella. We we go so Tony Kukoc and Irvin Johnson were my vets. I sat next to Tony on the plane. He was a guy I looked up to as a kid, so it was kind of surreal to me. And I still remember we're flying to I don't know where it was. It might have been Philly or somewhere for our first regular season game. And I kind of said, "Where are we going? Where's team dinner? Where's the team meeting? What are we doing?" And he turned around and just laughed in my face and said. See you tomorrow at shoot around. <laughs> so that was my welcome to the NBA. I mean, coming from college in Australia where everything's structured, you know, team buses to the hotel, to team meals, to team meetings, the NBA, it was in your face individual when you're away from the court. It was do what you got to do. Some guys like doing this, some do that. Get your own meal, room service, go out to dinner. And that was pretty confronting as a young fella coming out of college where everything was structured. So that leads me into to a kind of an interesting story about how superstars perceive themselves at times. And I had Michael Red on my team throughout my early stages of my career. He just signed a max deal. And he was, for the most part, a pretty humble guy, but I think got lost in his stardom a little bit. We get on the team plane and the way the team planes were set out back when I was younger was there, there's tables that were eventually used for poker or dominoes or cards, but these tables would have food set up on them. So there'd be two two tables in each aisle at the front and then one in the middle. Well, Michael Red used to use one of those tables. That was his, his seat, his assigned seat that he kind of had dibs on for the year. So he would sit right in front of the food. Everyone would get their food and they'd clean the food off. And then eventually that would be his table. He'd play video games or, or do whatever he did on that table. So I used to sit next to him right over his left shoulder. So I'm sitting there one day and um, you'll like this pro because it involves food mainly, but- Oh, thanks. <laughs> he's sitting at the food with the table. He pushes the, the call light for the stewardess. Are you allowed to say that these days? Flight attendant, sorry. No, sorry, don't write us letters. The flight attendant comes out Gets to him and he's he basically made the flight attendant plate up the food, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm this is the first or second year in the league. I think it was my first year, and I was like, Mike, come on, man, are you serious? He's like, What? I'm like, You're sitting at the table with the food, man. Like, did you really just call over a flight attendant to plate up the food that's right in front of you? And that was kind of my foray into dealing with a max player. So pretty, pretty interesting. I mean, superstars do get catered to a lot and it's kind of a funny story, but I, I gave Michael Red shit about that for the rest of his, whenever I saw him, like I'd be like, hey man, you need me to get you anything? You want me to, you want me to put your, whenever I had his water bottle, you want me to pull that water bottle in your mouth? Like, you know what I mean? Just, just nonstop railing on him. And he didn't really know how to take it because of my stupid Australian sense of humor. And he didn't know if I was giving him shit or really trying to help him. But um, I'm sure you have similar stories, Pro, but that was one that stuck out for me. Well, Bogues, for me, it's, uh, you know, I would never do that. I would never, ever, ever, ever do what Michael Red did. Because A, I would never have a situation where my food would actually go cold. <laughs> I don't know. There was so much hijinks on planes and stuff. Yeah, there is. There is. But it's, it's just, I mean, look, I, I don't think Michael meant any malice by it. But it just, when you look at it from afar, it's like, I guess those everyday people that you don't think too much about, the, the, the flight attendants, the trainers, the people that are carrying your bags, you, I guess there are some stars out there that sometimes lose sight of that and forget how, you know, they're important people in the role too, and you can somewhat belittle them without even knowing you're doing it sometimes. Well, the problem the problem that arises, Bogues, is like NBA players, and I guess most pro athletes, for the most of their lives, you know, from like 10 years old on, it's all, it, it, no offense to them, but mostly it's all about them. You know, they've got people around them that do most of the stuff for them. They got people who cook for them, clean for them. Uh, do their laundry for them, drive for them. So they don't really, they don't really think of it, especially when they're on an NBA plane on a team when the team people, it's not their job to clean up for them either sometimes, you know? So 
Like they probably, he probably didn't think much of it. Now there are some players that probably, you know, they, they do it on purpose. Yeah, you know, I've seen that happen. Yeah, but like same. most yeah. players, because everything's centered around them, even the like the role players, you know, it just, you know, there were stars everywhere and they just, that's sort of their life that they've, you know, they got all these people around them and do everything for them. So. And it's a hierarchy. It's a hierarchy for everyone out there listening. So when you, you get on a team plane and everyone's getting their food, the max guy's getting his meal first and then it trickles down to who's making what money. That's how petty it gets. When you go into the training room for a massage or, or to get your ankles taped, if there's a young fella on there and you're the max guy, you're kicking him off, come back later. This is me now. That's just something that's always been part of it, I guess. And it's it's just interesting, you know, when you come in blind from college and how structured college is, especially where it's very regimented and you, you, you're taught to be respectful of everyone, it just becomes literally it becomes a hierarchy based on going on hoops hype and seeing who earns the most money on the team. Yeah. Uh, I think you're right about that. And also, um, you know, you're talking about Lob City. Well, my, you know, my nickname in the NBA was Blob City. So, you know, that's that's something something Some I lived up to on a daily basis, and I'm very proud. I'm very very proud of it. <laughs> we'll leave that with the people. Thanks, Pro, for joining us again. Episode three, Rogue Bogues on all the social media platforms: Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Another good week, Pro. We haven't been cancelled yet. Hopefully, it doesn't happen next week. Yeah, hopefully, my one you know of my seven followers, I don't get cancelled, so I'm good. Cool, man. Thanks. We'll see you next week.